Hi, welcome to episode three of Insecurity. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. How you doing this week, buddy? I'm doing great, man. That is uh, excellent news. So a couple of quick uh, quick touches before we actually get into the, the, the real excitement. We're busy on the back end. We're playing with uh, a lot of the hardware, setting things up, and trying to improve the quality. So again, at any point, if you have any kind of feedback or if you want to leave any kind of comments, please don't hesitate to do so at in-security.org. Anything you wanted to add here? Uh, I just wanted to say that I probably sound much better than last time, and that's thanks to actually buying a real microphone. So I don't have to hold anything anymore. I have something sitting on the desk in front of me of pretty decent quality, and I believe that you have something uh, that our listeners will enjoy in the near future. I do. I've got something in the works, and you absolutely sound stunning by comparison. Um, well done. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. This week we're talking about Colonel Sanders. What uh, what are, what are we looking at? Well, I um, I thought it would be good to look at what we've talked about before. So we talked about you know the different parts of a computer. It's been a while, so I needed a refresher. I actually listened to the previous episode, um, and just wow. to kind of level set and see where we were. And man, did we cover a lot last episode. That is commitment too. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was a very, very heavy, very dense episode. Yeah. So that one was jam packed. Um, if you're listening to it and anything wasn't clear, uh, there's show notes that should be added by now, AKA before we publish this and add some show notes that you guys can go look at and, um, do a little bit deeper of a dive if anything was confusing. And as you said, during that podcast, you can actually go back and listen to it again and uh, really come to grips with some of those complex topics we're discussing. But remember that ta- uh, because yeah, it's on. a recording, you can always pause and jump back. We we won't be offended. Hmm. So last time, first time we talked about the hardware, and the previous time we talked all about ones and zeros and what it means, and some problems with implementations of ones and zeros with the integer overflow that we covered. And this time. We're going to step away from the individual program a little bit, and we're actually going to talk about the operating system, which is how the computer, uh, the, the, the chief traffic conductor of the computer that makes the programs actually work individually in these new complicated computers that we have that can do more than one thing at one time. Was there um, less complicated computers that didn't have operating systems? Yes, things like calculators that only did one thing at one time. Um, the old Altair systems that would just have lights blinking. I don't still quite understand why exactly that was. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, 25, 30 years ago, there was these single task systems. And to a certain degree, there's, I mean, your fridge is a single task computer Um you know, there's objects out there that are single task computers that don't have to worry about switching between jobs. I don't know whether I can touch on this. Why is my fridge a computer? Well, it has a a little switch that turns on the light. Um, We talked about switches being kind of logic gates before, but there were, um, it's programmed to do certain things. Like if you have an ice maker in it, Right, so that that little ice maker is a single task computer that knows to per, um, draw on a certain amount of water, and then f- hit that little bar forward to turn it to chunk up the ice into little sections at the right amount of time. Right, so there's like clocks, there's valves, there's other stuff, and it's really what a computer is. It's a program that tells it to do a, a task. So I think I I think I picked the wrong thing to latch onto there. Sure. Um, in in that case, if there are older machines that had no operating system and they were simply sing, single task ones, does that mean that the the main function of an operating system is that it's going to allow you to do more tasks? 
So a, a modern day operating system has more things to juggle than just like the fridge has a water, a lever being the user input of whether it's on or off, right? And it, it does multiple tasks. It has to juggle all of the resources of the system and the ability to access it and the way the way that people choose to run programs. The operating system is really the the traffic cop that says, okay, your turn's done. Now it's your turn to go. Um, yes, you're allowed to do this or that. Hard to discuss it too abstractly. I'm actually going to bring forward the stuff that we we're talking about in the hardware section and, and bring it up now. Okay. So there's hard drives, there's memory, there's the CPU. There's the other things that we start adding to computers um, for the hope that we can actually use them like a printer to output stuff to, I mean, a screen going through the video card, all of these components have to interact together. It doesn't just happen by magic. Somebody's actually programmed this one traffic cop to keep with that same thing to, to manage these resources and allow one person to use something else. Um, so the, the thing that's the traffic cop, it's actually got a name and it's called the a kernel, right? And that's why the episode name is Colonel Sunders um, because it talks about, you know, Sunder is like the cut and the kernel is the the traffic cop, the, the thing in the middle that's allowing things to run at whichever time and switch between them. And because computers do all these things so fast, uh, it might not be noticeable to an individual who's typing, say, a, a Word document up and the fact that it's switching back and forth between all these other things that are going in the background, moving the clock forward, accepting a network connection from somebody else. You know, these are the types of things that the the kernel is handling on behalf of the user. And then while the while you're busy typing, it runs autosave, which engages the hard drive itself and stuff. Backs That's it up right. to that. Yeah, sure. And, and so there's a bunch of operating systems that we're familiar with, uh, like Windows and Mac and Linux and more in the enterprise space. You know, we have um, Solaris as an operating system. There's the mainframes, which have, you know, were popular back in the day and, and still are used in enterprise applications. And they all basically do the same thing. They all manage resources. Sorry, is mainframe an operating system? Well, ZOS or was it is just an, main mainframes used operating systems of their own. Yeah, so mainframes use operating systems of their own. A uh, common one for mainframe is the IBM ZOS. Um, but like Vax, VMS Vax, back in the day, I guess could be considered mainframe or a micro system or something like that. Um, and there are other ones. Just the one I'm familiar with is ZOS. Okay, I just wanted to. to sure on that cool okay so the kernel acts as a traffic cop between the different applications um, that are running so as we said somebody programs together this application and say we have a simple calculator application right so somebody puts in a number it needs to call it it needs uh, to store that within memory then it needs to push that down to the cpu which then, uh, you know, first it needs to get the input from the keyboard. So there's this polling of the keyboard saying, hey, do you have anything new for me? Do you have anything new for me? Do you have anything new for me? How about now? How about now? How about now? Right? And so it, the person hits the button, displays it on the screen. All this interaction is the kernel doing. And um, I guess we should go back and say, how does the how does the kernel actually start in the beginning? So... So the kernel is essentially all software. It's all software. It's all running, you know, in gets loaded up into memory. Um, it is in a special part of memory that uh, that shouldn't be overwritten. It um, it's just it's live when the system turns on. You boot up. You see that loading Windows screen or that little Apple logo or whatever input letting you know that it's it's starting this boot up process it's actually stored on the hard drive um, and there's something called a, a bios which is basic input out system and it um 
it says, I know that I'm going to look at this special place on this disc to start this bootstrap process. And it's called a bootstrap process because really it's pulling itself up by its own bootstraps. It, it's um, starting the whole system preparation to be running the operating system to begin with. And the operating system's the the first thing that gets loaded after the after the BIOS tells it that it's got to look at this section of the disk. So it starts building itself in the system's memory, starts executing things in the CPU, um, starts setting up the disk to be able to get ready to handle other things. Um, and another thing that it does with the disk is it, it sets up the file system. Um, it defines a way that files are written and interpreted from the hard drive. Clear okay. so far? Yeah. Can I, at this point, I, I kind of want to interject or um, ask briefly about the, the BIOS. Yeah. Are we going to touch back on that later or? No, nah, it's not really important. I, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to try and see if I get this part right. The BIOS essentially is a program that is written uh, and then hard coded essentially onto a, a chip. So it's not actually, um, it's not actually like on the CPU or anything like that. And then essentially all it does is when the computer first starts up, it powers up the BIOS and that's the part that goes through. And then essentially all it main function is, is to, de to determine whether the hardware itself is essentially connected if things are not connected. And then from that point, it calls out to the kernel to start running. Is that yeah, I mean more the BIOS. It? The BIOS is the thing that you configure when you put a new piece of hardware in your machine, um, and when you initially set it up, it it just lets it know um, kind of how the stuff is attached to the motherboard on the system, which is that main back plate within within the computer's tower or attached to your laptop. One one component that assists with this booting up is saying like where the primary hard drive is. And then there's a special sector on that hard drive um, called the boot sector. Uh, sector is like an allocation of space. It's the boot sector that says, okay, now I'm going to use this special place on the space to start this bootstrap process up. And I mean, I, I was a little flippant before when I said that the BIOS isn't important. It is important. It does a lot of stuff. Um, and it's kind of uh you know it's possible to get infected with a bootstrap uh sorry it's possible to be um infected so that whenever a machine gets turned on it's automatically infected the operating system but we'll deal with that later if at all it's not kind of this fundamental computer science basic part um the, the fact that uh, the different components of the system are are set in the BIOS and then that it goes to the bootstrap component is what's important right now as we start talking about the operating system. So I guess you could call the bootstrap, uh, sorry, the BIOS a pre-operating system. Okay. I just didn't want to really gloss over it too, too much without like a general. Yeah, I guess it's a good point. It's not, not one that I'd considered when writing the show, but no, it's great. Okay. Sorry, uh, that com probably completely sidetracked you. No, no, it's fine. So, so uh, you know, I was just saying how the hard drive contains the operating system, starts booting it up, uh, it allocates what it needs to, and then it goes... Um, another really important thing that it does at the same time, reserves a piece of space in the memory, saying this is the operating system's space and memory nobody else is allowed to write to this space it's a reserved protected space of memory and then um, it it manages the other applications as, as the program gets called up and says okay how much memory space do you need because that's defined when somebody programs the application and it says fine i'm reserving the space in memory and it starts writing these things contiguously and then when an application's closed, it removes it from memory. It says, okay, this space in memory where the program was set before, we'd no longer need that. So you'll have like these holes in the middle of the space 
And then another application will say to start up and it says, can I fit you in this hole? Can I fit you in that hole? Can I write you across several different ones? Um, and that's the job of the operating system is managing these finite resources that we use to get the most bang for the buck out of it. And then the new CPUs even, right? They have like multiple cores. You can have multiple processors in a system. Um, and it's the job of the the traffic cop kernel to split this between all of these different resources that are requiring access to it at any point in time, right? And they'll say, okay, you application get to write on this one. I'm hogging this one for myself as the operating system, you know, and it just manages the memory allocation between the CPUs and it all gets very complicated as you add more and more things. Mm -hmm. And then as I'd mentioned, like, you know, there's other peripherals that we have that we didn't really go into too much details with before, but like a video card to output to the monitor what exactly uh, you're supposed to see and uh, and having a printer attached so you can print to that. There's a need for um, the operating system to know the special way to talk to those devices and those are called drivers. A driver is a special application that's given a little bit more privileged than any other application because it needs to interface with the operating system and communicate to the device kind of more unfettered than a regular program would be. So the operating system can be a little bit more harsh on a regular application than it would be on like a driver. A little bit more scrutiny, less trust. Would it be fair to say that a driver is essentially like an instruction manual for the hardware installed for the operating system? Or is that um, abstracting it too much? I think that's abstracting it too much. It's a module. It's a bolt-on thing. It's an extra feature um, that, that the operating system can now manage the resource. But don't the drivers essentially explain how the resource can, be, can work and how it can be used? Yeah, it, it does. It does. But I, I don't want to make it sound like the operating system has to keep reading up a manual. It's just kind of something that's added to the knowledge immediately. And, and it has the ability to change with updates to the drivers, but it doesn't really affect the operating system, right? It's just it's automatically accessible. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, that's how an operating system manages stuff at a fairly abstracted layer. It's got, you know, it can have services to manage these things. Um, it can do a lot of, there's various different aspects to it that I'm not going into, that I'm glossing over the details for. But I mean, bringing this into a, a security context and out of just the basic comp size stuff, uh, let's talk about the various things that people do to take advantage of these components. And I think before we really get into that, there's these concepts that I'm going to use, uh, sorry, these terms that I'm going to use over and over again. And we should probably just get it out of the way and kind of define them right now. Uh, a vulnerability is a weakness in a program that people either know about or don't know about, um, but it's just kind of latent there, okay? Mm -hmm. An exploit is taking advantage of that weakness or vulnerability to do something that was not originally intended. Right. So, I mean... This is where the term hacking comes from, is really to um, exploit a vulnerability to gain new functionality or unanticipated functionality out of something. It could be malicious, it could be beneficial. Then there's the concept of authorization. Okay, and authorization is what you're permitted to do. So. As I said before, the operating system handles uh, file system allocation of disk space. Part of that file system concept is this concept of what you're allowed to have access to, right? So the operating system has to have access to everything. So the authorization for the operating system services is like full. But me as an individual user, I might have access to uh, certain components in in um, in my own section of the file system, my user section of the file system, 
but I shouldn't be able to modify parts of the operating system on disk so that the next time it boots up, it, I've exploited the vulnerability of overly permitting access to the disk, right? Right. So there's this concept of authorization, who's allowed to have access to what. And this is the same thing with memory, the protected mode of memory. I'm not authorized to go there. Now, this term is often confused with authentication. Authentication is actually the fact that when I turn on the system, I log in with my ID. So the operating system authenticates me. Yes, I, I knew the right username and password combination. I've gained access to the system. Now it can do the authorization to say what I do and don't have access to. Cool. Is permissions in there anywhere? Or is permission synonymous with authorization? Permissions is synonymous with authorization. Okay, perfect. Just in case it comes up. Oh, that's a good point. I guess in the most basic level of, of types of attacks against the operating system, the easiest one to probably understand is let's just trick the user to do something, to run something, and let's kind of exploit the user as vulnerability to let us run a program on the computer. So this is like spam emails, the phishing emails, the click on this link emails, right? Where it really needs the user intervention to, to run something. And where this can really affect the operating system directly is that concept of drivers, right? So if I can trick you to install a malicious driver, now I'm making something trusted by the operating system. So you get a new printer, you wanna download the driver, you do a Google search for it. Hey, maybe I've uh, spoofed the SEO. You're no longer, you as a user decided to not go to the official website to get it. I've got this wonderful driver page where I've downloaded a bunch of drivers, added um, backdoor systems that, that allow me to gain access to your computer under your privilege or under the operating system privilege. And I've convinced you to install this. Now your OS is compromised. Oh, that's another term I didn't define. Compromised. Okay. The concept of compromise is just that, I guess that I've exploited a vulnerability. Um, and there's different levels of compromise. So one might be that it's reaching back out to my computer, letting me have direct access to it, telling telling my computer, yes, I'm, I'm under your control master. Uh, do whatever you want to me. So compromisation essentially encompasses anything. Like if you potentially get like any of your other words, authentication, authorization, exploits, or potentially vulnerabilities, compromised is just any of those when it's not in your hands. Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. I think it's really exploiting a vulnerability um, and it can impact, you know, I haven't been authenticated, but you've done something to um, allow me to have access to the system. So okay. I... Or I could hack into your system. Another word for compromise is hack, right? right. Synonymous in, in popular terminology. Okay. So we're tricking the user by extension the computer to run something malicious. Could that potentially fall under social engineering? Yep. Yeah. So I'll actually want to talk about that a little bit later because it's a really cool topic um, that actually has a lot to, to do with it. Um, so let's save that for like the eighth or ninth episode. Yep. Um, but yeah, essentially, you know, pulling a little con, tricking the user, um, to give me access to the computer just by convincing them to do something. Right. All okay, right. We'll come back to that. Cool. So, um, that's like the, the driver component that we talked about. Um, how to exploit that. Uh, there's also the ability of, um, you know, if I could trick the user to load up a, a new BIOS upgrade, uh, which I said I wouldn't talk about, but hey, hey, guess what? I did. Um, you know, I, I could make sure that when the first thing that it loads up is my malicious program into protected memory, which allows me to access protected memory and dump it out or do whatever um, before it loads the operating system. That way the operating system can't really protect anything. There's the possibility of loading up a malicious firmware 
uh, into the BIOS if I can convince somebody to do that. Um, and then other exploits. There's not really a, an exploit against the CPU. You can't really just directly exploit the CPU. You have to do it through through memory, uh, which I'll get into in a little bit. And then there's the uh, the hard drive. So like viruses on the hard drive, um, escalation of privileges. So being able to uh, trick the way that the file system works to allow me to gain access to um, a section that should be protected that I'm not allowed to through the normal authorization. Like as an example, a section of the memory that we talked about before where you said that uh, it, the system reserved it for itself. Um, well, I said I'd come back to memory in a bit. I'm actually talking about the hard drive now. Oh, the hard drive. Okay, so like the boot sector then. Um, or, or just the operating system's files themselves. Okay. Right, or another user's home drive um, that I shouldn't have access to. But if I can trick the operating system to think for a second that I'm that user, then it'll say, hey, you're authorized to see this. Or uh, I can trick it that, I'm doing something on behalf of the operating system, the operating system has privilege to everywhere on the disk, then I can um, gain access to that if, if there's such a vulnerability that could be exploited. Okay. Okay. So there's the memory thing that I, I wanted to avoid. It's, it's actually really the topic of the show is that everything exists in memory on the computer, right? Passwords get written to the memory of the system, um, the operating system ability to enforce permissions, it, it exists in memory. Really, the bulk of the system, the, uh, of the use of the system, is memory. And if you can manipulate the memory, then you can do all of the other bad stuff uh, other than convincing a user to run stuff. So if I can convince a user to run a malicious program, or if I can find a vulnerability in a system and exploit it in a way to run my program, like through a malicious web page or whatnot, if I can get the computer to put this stuff into memory and then try to execute the memory, I can have it lead to you know uh, a bunch of different outcomes that are good for a nefarious person. The way that I was saying how the, the system jumps between memory addresses for programs when it loads them in and out, Within a single uh, memory space, if you remember last time we were talking about the fact that memory contains a data segment and a, a code segment being the, the variables that get written to and the uh, machine language code that gets executed. Right. So if I can confuse the machine to mix those up, if I can write to uh, a section of the code that's supposed to contain a variable and overwrite it so this it allocates this buffer of memory for um, my variables to fit within but if i just keep yammering on and chatting and chatting with stuff i can get maybe into a section of code that's actually supposed to be executed right and then i can put in my own instructions there like start up a, a command prompt for me or a shell script or whatever, right? Run run this program as code. Right. And then I convince another part of it to jump to this section of code, execute this section of code that I've put, that I've overwritten, right? And who cares if my program crashes? I've, I've started this other process that the operating system is running and allocating and doing all the things the operating system is supposed to do, but I've exploited this vulnerability that, that's running this nefarious program. Hmm. And that is, uh, that's a concept called buffer overflow. Buffer overflow. Yep. And then there's the concept of a, a race condition where uh, a finite amount of re resource is needed by by an application, but if I can just squeak in there just in the nick of time and overwrite a section of it, um, then I can have my output be executed 
influencing the overall direction for it to that it was supposed to do. That's a really bad description for it. Um, the the concept is like it, if I'm racing to the printer down the wire that's connected to the computer, you know, I could put an extra word in the output of the printer while the computer is trying to manage its resources and it actually accidentally slips out uh, a bad word in the middle of uh, an important presentation or whatever, right? Right. So that's kind of the concept of a a race condition. So race, R-A-C-E, right? Right. Okay. I'm just making sure I'm hearing that right. Like as in people running. Yes. Or as in a word racing down the cable towards the printer. A naughty word. One that I'd like to say. <laughs> um, hmm. What else we got? Uh, maybe we should talk about the way that these things are protected against. Okay. So there's the ability to, uh, as, as an administrator of the system, so the person in control of, of my computer is me, I can actually harden the operating system through settings that are set for me to do things like have more complex passwords so people won't have the ability to guess it as easily, close off the services that aren't needed um, so that there's a a less of an attack surface that somebody could find a vulnerability and exploit, right? Because you can't exploit something that's not running. Increase the granularity of authorization on the hard drive so scale back my permissions um you know as an individual home user of a pc uh running windows microsoft is very happy to just let me sign in as an administrator all the time right which is really bad practice right because now i'm running as the second in command of the system able to load up drivers able to do all of these privileged activities able to access anybody on my computer's files you know and the only one who's got more privilege than me is the operating system for its purposes of managing all the resources that it has to do right but if i'm running as just a regular user right there's less chance that i could be convinced to run a program Hopefully I'd get prompted at least that I have to log in as administrator. I'd actually have to type in my administrator password to escalate my privileges to run something. And I mean, that's just the the real life scenario that we live in now with so many malicious people on the internet trying to convince people through social engineering or just con artistry um, that really people need to not run as uh, an administrator or as a root all the time they really need to just live with what they need as a regular user and then escalate their privileges uh, as necessary to be fair microsoft has done quite a few big changes towards stopping that a little bit like essentially even if you're running as a administrator you still keep getting all the prompts now for the the authentication things like if you're trying to run something you know once the above your pay grade then it put it it keeps bumping up and it asks you like hey this is something that actually requires administrative um, authority do you really are you sure you want to run this yeah so what you're referring to as the uac right um which i can't remember what it stands for but it's 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 the prompt that says you know are you sure you want to run this as a privileged user type thing Microsoft has admitted that that's not actually a protective mechanism people have found out ways to circumvent it um, so that the person doesn't get prompted. but It's the user account control, but it at the very least, it's some semblance of a step in the right direction. It is, but it's Microsoft's not putting in the effort to make it 100% effective because they recognize that there's vulnerabilities against it. It's not a substitute from running with regular user permissions and then escalating to a privileged account when you actually need to. No, but at the very least, uh, on occasion, it does give some semblance of uh, a sense of what's going on there. But then the other thing that you mentioned a lot of the time for where the tricks happen were people tricking the users into doing things. And there are other um, 
other steps that have been taken and in, in things like that. Like, for instance, there's a lot of uh, email programs and applications and stuff that you can, um, if it has an attachment that it suspects would potentially be harmful, then it's just going to let you know, like, hey, this attachment is an actual program or this attachment could be harmful. Um, a lot of them also have, like, the antivirus things attached to them. Do you feel like that's a, a good step? Oh, definitely, definitely. I, and I agree with you that Microsoft has done a lot for it. I actually do want to, you know, come back to the concept, though, that we're just talking about the operating system right now and not really the programs that are running that are bundled in with the operating system, like the email programs. Really, I'm just talking about the user authentication component, the the passwords that are stored there, the the file system, your reserved space on the drive, um, and the ability to do very rudimentary stuff on the computer. You know, when we're starting to get into email and browsers, those are really applications, even though they might be bundled with the operating system. They're kind of a, a lot more high level. There, but I just wanted to bring that up as an example because you did say that the one of the main ways to exploit this is through the user. Yes. So obviously the biggest fix would be educate your users. Um, hey, do you know where this came from? No, don't click it then. Yeah, and, and to be fair, Microsoft and, and Linux, and um, I, I don't know so much the, the Mac world, but they, they've come a long way to at least distinguish the fact that you know, you're setting up your computer for the first time, you're installing it. I need a, a, a password for the administrator or the root account. And now I'm also going to create a user account for you to use on a daily basis, right? But they kind of don't really discuss the consequences of people not using the root or administrator account all the time, like the consequences of them doing it, I mean, right. um, and why it's so important to use those other regular user accounts and that's kind of what i w wanted to discuss and raise the awareness um that uh, it is something people should do so by default you're saying when you set up your new computer or even if you've already set it up you can go into your user control you can add a new user who is simply a user not an authorized uh, not a an administrator Go ahead, you set that up, and then at that point, you can use that account on a regular basis. When you do need to, you switch accounts, or uh, I think there's an option, actually, if you're signed in as a user, at least through Windows, to temporarily sign in as an administrator to add something. Yeah, Isn't that's that right. through the like, run as administrator option? Yeah, if a program needs the privileges to run as an administrator, it'll prompt you for that, it, it recognizes that there's a special account for administration on, on the system that it'll prompt you for. Mac does it as well, I know. And for Linux, it just assumes that you know enough to actually run the program as root. Uh, otherwise, it'll prompt you saying that it's not privileged to do so. Yeah, and, and that's way more powerful than an actual UAC because you actually don't have the permissions to execute that program under your regular user ID. So even if it bypasses the UAC, it's still not going to work. It's not going to do anything. Correct. Right. While we're on that note, just a quick touch here. When you do create, or if you do create a user, um, a user account and an administrator account, A, don't use the same username, and B, don't call your administrator administrator, which I think is still the default for Windows. The default administrator name, isn't it still administrator? I believe so it's actually been a while since i've sent a, set up a computer um i know i've renamed it and then you can rename it after the fact mm -hmm. but uh yeah i think you're right by default it's just administrator i'm not sure i think uh i don't remember well i know that i was just setting up windows 7 again before we uh before we started recording and uh all it really asked me is my username and then a password and then it creates my first account based off that username and a password, but it creates me as an administrator by default. Okay. So they shouldn't create me as an administrator by default. They should simply allow you to create a, a, an account and then 
also have you set up an administrator or enter an administrator password. Do you, do you remember if it asked you first for an administrator password and then it asks you for your regular account? No, nah, it doesn't. It just asks you the username or the name that you want to use, aka the username, and then it asks you to enter a password. And then when you create the account, it simply uses that password. Okay. Okay. So maybe it doesn't actually do that step that I said um, prompts you for a regular username. Maybe that's just in Linux that I'm thinking of. I could be wrong. I've done it like so many times that I don't even read it anymore. I simply just type in the, the things in the right places. Click, 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 next, done, yes, okay, whatever. Oh, man, at some point we got to touch on that one. Next, 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 finish. <laughs> yeah. Because next, 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 finish, while we're talking about attacks that trick the user, oh, my gosh, that is the easiest thing to put it in there. You'll find all those little programs. That's why people get all those toolbars and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because now everyone has been trained, next, 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 finished. Yeah. If there's any doubt in a user's mind, they'll just say, next. Know, this is a problem <laughs> I want. Don't ask me these hard questions. Where's Where's the finish button? Yeah. All right. I, I don't know if we got sidetracked there either. but No, I think that's uh, that's good because it does kind of play into what we were talking about, tricking users to load these other programs. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, be it a adware piece of thing that's always in your face or whatnot. Um, what else? Oh, okay. So I was talking about um, buffer overflows, right? And the uh, ability for someone to overwrite this section of memory that another program has already written to to execute, or tricking um, the program that I'm currently running that instead of jumping back to a section of code to, to execute the next step to jump to the section of memory that I've just overwritten to execute that as code. Um, so th there's a bunch of different techniques that uh, operating systems over the past, I don't know, five years have implemented to make these things a lot more difficult to do. So there's the address space layout randomization. So no longer is your program going to be this contiguous block of memory where if I find out what the beginning memory address is, then I can make a really good guess estimate as to the next execution address space. It'll actually do that like sprinkling of my program across multiple segments of memory, make the, the starting of a new program start up in a random place as opposed to the next available space. So that's one concept. And then... Um, just as it gets better, Windows has started to put better protection into, you know, what is a data segment? What is a code segment? So to dumb that down a little bit, um, if you were a telemarketer and you were cold calling just random phone numbers to sell whatever your garbage was, essentially what you're saying is the computer has now made it so that the phone numbers are not necessarily, you know, um, one, one, then two, then three. Like it, like it would say, okay, so this uh, five one four area code no longer represents Montreal, right? Five one four is now sprinkled throughout everything else, so you don't know what city you're calling anymore um, to perpetrate a local attack. Right. right now, you could be calling Los Angeles with five one four which doesn't make any sense for the phone systems to work or like postal codes or whatever like that. But it's, it's just a way of getting that obfuscation out there. You don't know where you're going to start. I'm smart enough to manage the, the allocation. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't looking for a, a sensible analogy, just an analogy. I hope, hopefully I added some sense. Yeah. Thanks buddy working for the phone company that would be a nightmare doesn't work for networking either no no or any kind of address the postal the post office yep a anything where what you street need to do you live on this street oh that street might be over here well at some you know, points the simpsons live in springfield but which state you know i think they sorted that out they might have but for yeah. a long time that was uh they were on the East Coast and West Coast and Middle America and who knows what. Right. Um, okay, so 
I didn't go into too much details of the protection stuff. I didn't go into too much details of the attack stuff, but I touched on it, discussing kind of why it's important to run with less privileges and I probably spent too much time on people tricking uh, a user to exploit. Uh, that's my favorite part. System. It, uh, me too. Um, but there's, you know, other vulnerabilities that exist throughout applications that people can exploit just basically if something's coded incorrectly and it's given the per- permissions to start a new task or whatnot. I mean, as we go along, things are running with less and less permissions because people realize they don't need it. It's a super common mistake for someone who's a developer to start coding an application to operate as a regular user, hit one little snag and then say, eh, screw it. I'm going to increase the permissions uh, for this so I don't hit the snag anymore, right? And then as that gets throughout the, the release cycle, maybe that affects something. So I can say at work, there's uh, someone had programmed in in their development system to run this folder under for full permission. So anybody can have read, write, execute access to it. Permission level is called 777. <laughs> and and that um, when they packaged up the application on that Unix system, they preserved those permissions. They made this nice little zip type thing called the tarball, and they said go and uh, and and test this. And the testers put it out there. Hey, test worked, no problem. Went to put it into production. Uh, the production guy says, "Why is this trying to execute? Uh, why is this trying to?" have all of these permissions. Regular applications aren't allowed to have these permissions. And then it failed. They had to go back to the test cycle. You know, back what I was saying before, it's, it's an expensive process to, uh, to not set things up r- the correct way the first time. Right. I've done that at some point when I was doing web development. I would have a specific page that needed to have the permissions and then... Um, I just didn't have the right permission set for it, so it wasn't working. And then I couldn't be bothered to figure out what the right ones were. So I was just like, all of them. I'll give them all the permissions, which is a terrible thing to do. But if you're just doing it while you're developing and then remember to turn it off again, that's kind of okay. Yeah. No, it's okay to to use it as a troubleshooting tool. But did you ever get bit by it? No, because I never put it into production at that point. Yeah, like I never, That's good. I never published with that, but I would do that on my own, um, on my local server. Anyway, sorry again. No, I mean, I'm. That's a perfectly valid thing to to bring up, and and you know, brings about my thought of uh, WordPress is what we use as a, a publishing platform for the website, and there's an update for a remote code execution vulnerability within the WordPress site, which is that exploitation of a vulnerability is a really bad one. Um, and WordPress has had several over the course of its life that have been really bad. And it's probably because the programmers, when they began with, started with overly permitted stuff and then have been scaling it back ever since. Um, but they've been doing a good job, like Microsoft has been doing, closing off these these problems uh, over time. It's just, in my mind, it's really the wrong way to go about it. You want to start off as granular and as strict as possible and open it up when you're ready to release a new feature set. Stop letting people figure out their own feature sets, which could be very bad. Start out rock solid and loosen up from there. Yeah, until you hit that right level. Because taking away permissions in like an enterprise level, man, it's, it's, uh, you'll be surprised at how much creativity people have developed over the years to come up with new fun and unique ways to get the most out of their applications. And they don't want to give those up. No, absolutely. So I think, uh, in the interest of time and not trying to repeat, uh, last, <laughs> last episode where we covered probably too much, let's call it quits. All right, let's uh, let's wrap it up. So, again, um, anyone who wants to leave any kind of comments, any sort of feedback, please visit us at in-security.org. Uh, we're going to have some show notes up on the page somewhere. I haven't figured out where they go yet. We'll sort that out. Uh, the show notes that uh, for the last show will be up there as well. 
if you have any questions or anything like that, please don't hesitate to send us an email, uh, info at in-security.org. Uh, anything else you want to add, Max? Uh, if you have feedback for anything we can do to improve it, feedback at in-security.org. Next episode, we'll be covering networking. Uh, I think it's feedback, not info. We can set up both. But yes, it is feedback. That's what well, we I've advertised already... last, word, last time. Oh, cats. I already f- set up feedback. All right, don't, don't send it to info. I mean, it'll come through to us, but don't do it. Piss us off. <laughs> um, yeah, awesome. Uh, hopefully, next week, Max will uh, have some better sound. Maxwell. Matt yeah, Will. his microphone's terrible. What, is, what are you what, talking about? Your your new mic. You sound really hot. What are you What are you using now? Uh, it's the Blue Yeti Pro. It's uh, it's a little pricey, but man, is the quality sexy. By comparison to your your old. <laughs> uh, can I tell them about it? Sure. All right. So you had uh, what the the duct tape solution? At some point, you wrapped the the wire around your neck so that it would be closer to your mouth, so that you wouldn't have to hold it. Um, I think you've tried tucking it behind your ear. You've tried tucking it into. You just had uh, like a one dollar uh, dollar store microphone. Yeah, it was it was pretty cheap. I think it was like thirty five bucks back in the day when computers cost a lot more than they did now. Well, wasn't um, it like held together by tape at points? I I have taped it to to my chin so that I speak across it. Yes. Yeah. Um. And it's uh something for the last two podcasts that I've been holding in my hand and occasionally causing static and all sorts of pita for um, editing. Currently, I'm using a Plantronics headset, which for some reason I don't know, man. Today it's it's creaking. It didn't used to creak. And it doesn't creak when I sit at my desk, but I'm not currently at my desk because of my roommates. So hopefully we'll have some good sound coming uh, shortly. Uh, Not from Max. Max is already sounding fantastic. Glorious. Yep. Awesome. Um, All right. Let's wrap it up. You have yourself a great week. Thanks. You too. All right. Thanks. Bye.